0: Breaking the Glass, episode 21.
1: And so I remember um, telling all of my staff that day, like, it's possible that Chris Brown or Lorenz Tate could be here today and some other celebrities, and you guys are not to ask for autographs. You know, you need to act cool. And so as I'm, like, telling them all of this stuff, I turn around, and I, Lorenz Tate is, like, right there. And I, I it took everything within me <laughs> to not <laughs> fall out. I just couldn't believe it because it was like, this is somebody who I have like watched in movies. I really liked him. He was like my celebrity crush, I guess you could say. And so he was there at my event. But then to take it even further, you know, he tried my food and, and came and talked to me and was like, you know, you're really talented. This food is amazing. You know, he was saying how his wife bakes and how he does a lot of house parties and that I should come over and cook and i it just felt surreal to me i didn't even believe that i didn't but i was really close
0: (laughs) welcome to the breaking the glass show with tq sinkungu together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps Welcome to episode 12. My guest today is Chef Kendra McCrary. Kendra grew up in Southern California most of her life and ended up actually going to college at a Christian college near Los Angeles called the Masters College. It was a bit of a culture shock as you hear in the interview, but by living and serving there, she learned to deal with and give to lots of different people from multiple kinds of cultures. She worked in sales after graduation for a short period of time while thinking about what her plans were for the future. And then she saw from a friend of hers the creativity in the cooking business and that drove her to go to culinary school at Le Cordon Bleu, which is a very famous culinary school in Southern California. While there, she thought about a nonprofit idea that she had to help inner city youth and that led to her wanting to start her own catering business after she left her training at the culinary school at Cordon Bleu. She worked for free at the Beverly Hills Hotel and another hotel in Beverly Hills while she was a student and holding a full-time job. She did that so she could learn the real parts of the business while in school. And doing it for free meant there was nothing stopping anybody from letting her work there except for her hustle and perseverance. Right after school was done, instead of working under a chef for a period of time, she just jumped right into her own business. She started it and called it Ooh La La Catering, After a great story, you hear about her grandmother. Some people were just made to be entrepreneurs and work for themselves. And Kendra is definitely one of those. And her skills in the kitchen are amazing. I've had all kinds of food that she's cooked from clam chowder to lasagna to prime rib to chicken to all kinds of starches, fruits, vegetables and desserts. Even the different kind of waters she makes are good. You know, the kind of like with the cucumber in it or some other types of fruits in there wonderful, amazing stuff. So she's got tremendous skills and she's a good business person. Early on, she contracted a job with the yacht club, which was a very good accomplishment. And at the same time, while she was there, she faced different kinds of adversity in the form of outright discrimination and some parts of sabotage, but all that helped her develop a thick skin. Then as she built her business, she was able to work on a number of uh, opportunities with celebrity clients Like Lorenz Tate, Debbie Allen, Chris Brown, and many, many others. But to diversify her business, she worked in a number of different areas. For example, she worked on sets for TV shows and movies, she caters weddings, large parties, and even does small dinner parties. She works with big organizations like the company that manages events at the Santa Monica Pier, and she cooked for a frat house at the University of Southern California for a number of years. Lately, she's even worked at a sober living house to help young adults who've been in tough situations learn to cook and live on their own. She's a serious businesswoman and super skilled at her craft, making an ordinary meal great and make a super specific, unique meal based upon whatever her client wants. In L.A., a city that chews up and spits out businesses and in an industry that's dominated mostly by men and not very many women chefs or chefs of color even exist, Kendra has had a successful catering business for nearly 10 years, and the key part of her success is her humility, and it keeps her learning and growing. One thing that's interesting, though, is that even though she lives in L.A., and she's an amazing chef who's worked for multiple celebrities and on a lot of different uh, movie and TV sets, she's never been on those shows like Chopped or The Iron Chef. So if you got a hookup to get her in there, get in touch with me so we can get her put on the show. Her food will be amazing, and she'll be a great guest to have on there. Beyond that, you're going to have an opportunity to learn about the culinary business and being a chef and being a caterer from an extraordinary, successful woman of color, my guest, Kendra McCrary. My guest today is a good friend from Los Angeles, Chef Kendra McCrary. Kendra, welcome to the Breaking the Glass show. Thank you. I'm so excited to uh, to be talking to you, and uh, proud to have you on the call. Um, and first, what we always do go is go through a little bit of what I call the lightning round background. So, if you could just okay give us a little bit of a flavor for what life was like for Kendra growing up uh, in your childhood days, up through you know around college or so.
1: Okay. Um, well, I have I come from a kind of it's kind of hard to explain because my parents were married, but they were separated most of my childhood um so in a sense I grew up in a single parent family um, my dad was there you know off and on, but mostly not and so and then I also uh grew up living with different relatives, so stayed with an aunt in Oakland for a summer, stayed with another aunt, stayed with my grandparents. And so I, I kind of feel like my childhood, I was kind of dispersed around um, and just grew up with a really working mom who, you know, like most single parent families or the mom works a lot and, you know, you just kind of have to grow up pretty quick. And so that's essentially how I grew up. Um, we moved a lot. Um, I I think we moved probably every year or every two years, which is why I still move around a lot today. Um, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I just remember us moving a lot. And so always having different surroundings, different areas that I was around meeting different people. And, um, and then in high school, I, we moved to a different city that was about, it was about an hour away from San Diego where I grew up and it was, it was definitely interesting. Culture shock went from living in the hood to a more um, rural area. So not really a lot of people looking like me. Right. And so, move, you know, moving to going to uh, high school, which is already a big transition. And then transitioning culturally was, was kind of tough. But um
0: What was the hardest part about know, it?
1: I think um not knowing anyone and then also being like one of the only black people, um, it was just I I just didn't really know how who I was or what I don't know. I just it was just a very interesting experience and um, was kind of forced to make friends quick because we still lived in San Diego. Right. And so my parents would take us to school And we had to make friends because we had to stay with people until our parents could, you know, pick us up later in the evening. Mm -hmm. So that was also kind of awkward to, like, force myself to get to know people so I could be like, hey, can I come chill at your crib tonight? Oh, wow, Um, like your friends you had to do that that with? Yeah. Oh, wow. Because we didn't know, and I didn't know anyone out there. So school was out at, like, 2 and my parents couldn't pick us up until like six or seven at night,
2: right? And
1: so I had to find people that would let me stay at their house until they could, until we could could could, could get picked up. Basically,
0: did that make you better at making friends?
1: Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I I think it. I think maybe that started my um ability to do sales, though.
2: Yeah. <laughs> You because I don't know if
1: it made, me, yeah, I don't know if it made me good at making friends, but I think it was the start of making me realize, like, like planning and things that you have to put into place to make situations happen, right? Basically,
0: yeah, I've known you to be pretty fearless type of a person, so that I'm, I imagine if you have to, it's like singing for your supper almost, but just sing, you know, kind of like convincing people for a place to stay for the evening. Right. That, Five days a week. Too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that and like in at the in freshman in high school you started doing that? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Wow. And so would you have considered yourself I was asked, do you consider yourself at that time had to have been high class, middle class, low class, no class? What what category were y'all
1: in? <laughs> um I I would say middle class.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: And um so in San Diego, in the rural part outside of San Diego is where you're living. Um, What drove where you wanted to go to college?
1: Well, actually, that's that's an interesting question, because when I um, moving to Temecula from San Diego and my environment being completely different, it was a huge culture shock, even though I would consider us middle class, we definitely grew up in the hood in San Diego and then moved to more of like a suburb in Temecula. And just with the experiences um, that I had in high school, it just had me wanting to be very pro black. And so initially I was, I wanted to go to a, a black, a historically black college. Right. That was my uh, original plan to do that and to be, and to pledge with the sorority.
0: Okay. And what, so. what ended up happening actually? Like how did that, how did that wish turn out? What did that turn into?
1: Um, well, I, that was before I became a Christian. And so um, eventually I became a Christian. And um, and so that kind of changed the direction that I went. I started going to a community college and then from there transferred to a Christian university. Okay. And so the plans that I had just completely got switched
0: around so you didn't place any black sororities at the christian university no okay
1: oh no they didn't they definitely didn't have that at the (laughs) the school i went to
0: (laughs) okay do you want to talk about you want to say where you went to
1: yeah i went to the master's college okay um in santa clarita
0: yeah they barely have any black people much less a whole black sorority (laughs)
1: exactly
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh what was that experience like so You were going to go to HBCU and now you end up at the Masters, which is for people that don't know, John McCarthy was a very famous Christian uh, pastor, started the college and it's a very conservative, very, you Mm -hmm. know, primarily white Christian college. I'm really well respected, but what was that like in terms of what you were planning on doing versus what you ended up doing at at the Masters
1: College? Uh, Initially, I hated it to be mm. honest um i i remember being on campus and you know i was going to be staying in the dorm and i was all i had already been in college for a couple of years at a community college so when i transferred i think i was 20 or 21 so in my mind i was all the way grown and um <laughs> masters just had like a lot of rules and um uh, i remember the first day looking at the dorms uh, my mom was with me and when we went in i the roommate i was assigned to she played sports. So I guess she had been there like several months before me. So when I walked in her, she had already chosen her bed and her, everything was together. So I, I just felt like, wow, I, I don't have many options here. And right. everybody just seemed fake to me. You know, everyone was like happy and smiling and like, Hey, what's your, th-? it was just, it felt very weird. Mm. Um, Just to be real. And, yeah. um, I remember that day thinking like, what did I just sign up for?
0: <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Did they turn out to be real? Like, were they really happy like that or did it really turn out to be fake?
1: Um, I think there was a little of both. Okay. Um, but it was like, this is like my third or fourth culture shock because not only was it predominantly white, but we're talking predominantly white homeschool christians
2: right which is like
1: a whole different type of vibe than you know what i experienced in temecula so it was like i was having to adjust all over again
0: like they didn't know the latest uh pop culture stuff
1: oh no definitely not
0: (laughs) did they make their own clothes (laughs)
1: to me you know what some some did and you know there were different dorm rooms that were you know the people who resided in those dorm rooms were known for you know being certain things and there was one dorm room which was Dixon which they said Dixon was like all the people who made their own clothes (laughs) like were, (laughs) were homeschooled and like would probably end up being wives I was just like wow this is crazy. (laughs) It's
0: a little different. Did you get adjusted to it? Did you ever, you know, like find your way?
1: Eventually I did. Um, I, I think I was probably seen as a troublemaker when I, when I went there because I know a lot of people, you know, they went there and I felt like they just never questioned anything it was like they were brought up a certain way had certain beliefs and came there and everything was just so sterile and my background and you know what I had learned in church was very different than what I was learning there and so I asked a lot of questions I challenged teachers I you know not in a bad way but it was like I was the only one doing it I didn't right. just accept what people were saying I was like well I'm gonna need you to show me yeah where it says that we we need to study this together so I think that created some tension, but um, I would say probably by my second year, things got better.
2: Now,
0: the being in a place that is mostly predominantly white, did you feel like, and it, particularly with the cultural differences, did you deal with any biases or anything like that from other folks, either ob- obvious, overt ones or any subtle ones that you dealt with there? You
1: know, I... I don't know. I I mean, people were nice, but it was like, I don't know if I dealt with biases, but people were definitely um, ignorant toward black culture. Right. So there was just a lot of questions that, you know, can I touch your hair? Mm. This looks really cool. Like, you know, things that it's like, you know what? You need to back up. Okay. <laughs> You're not playing these games today. <laughs> It was just a lot of stuff like that. There were, like, three black girls all together at the school, and we would always be confused for each other, even though we looked nothing alike. Oh, wow. So it was just kind of, like, stereotypical things. Um, And and I I think people were nice and may have meant well, but it was just... It it was really uncomfortable initially.
0: I wonder... um uh, before we move out of college, how does that type of experience hit you? Like, does it bother you? Make you frustrated? Make you upset? Make you feel not wanted? Don't want to leave? To help people out? What? What? Do you, how does it hit you whenever that kind of thing hurts?
1: Um, I it definitely makes me feel frustrated. Um, and I think there were a lot of times that I was wishing that I had gone to the um, black universities, and you know, just Just for the culture and the camaraderie, I just, but then, you know, after being there, I just kind of looked at it like, well, maybe God has me here for a reason and maybe I need to like educate these people and, you know, maybe they've just been, have had such a sheltered life and why not it be me that kind of like help them understand what's okay and what's not okay to say and do. So I think I kind of just ended up taking that role on, but it, it definitely was frustrating.
0: It's interesting because that's oftentimes one of the reasons people give for having diversity in some cases, even with affirmative action, is to help there be cross-cultural understandings for people who aren't of a particular background. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: do you, did you feel like you get got a chance to do that? Do you have any examples of somebody that you taught something or helped them grow in a way that that might have been unexpected?
1: The only thing I can think of on the spot right now is um just the whole like coming up and touching your hair and you know asking questions that are offensive and like letting not just being offended by that but letting people know like this is offensive and you should not do this right and i think i was really accepting of a lot of things like different jokes that people would say that shouldn't have i shouldn't be laughing at you know, just trying to let people know, like, that's really not funny. And I'm I'm a little bit more relaxed, but you might be around somebody else who's not going to be so, like, willing to um, endure these comments or these kind of situations. And so I think that I just kind of was that way and just um, trying to let people know what was good and what wasn't.
0: So what did you do after college?
1: So, well, during college, um, I was actually engaged and so I was planning on moving initially to, um, the East coast, but then, you know, things didn't end up happening that way. And so I ended up getting a job, um, working in sales (laughs) right after college, which was not what my degree was in. My degree was in counseling. Um, but I was, I still was trying to figure out how I was going to utilize my degree. And so I took a job in sales in Los Angeles and did that job for a couple of years. Um,
0: what type of sales? Where were, you, where were you at?
1: I worked at a place called Esquire, which was a court reporting agency. And so um, dealt with a lot of attorneys. And basically with Esquire, we we had court reporters that worked for our company and it was our job to um get those court reporters with different attorneys and then using different legal services and that sort of thing so, so it really s- had nothing to do with what i wanted to do but it was a, a job with salary and benefits right, right after college so. which
0: is big eating <laughs> that whole thing i always ask for money yeah. at the grocery store every week
1: <laughs> exactly
0: what was next for you after doing that for a couple of years
1: you know, I, um, I always wanted to open a, a nonprofit in the inner city. Um, I always wanted to do some job that, that helped people that, you know, were either where I used to be or, you know, and so I, I did sales for a while after I left the court reporting agency, I ended up going to like a debt settlement place to like help people get out of debt. And it wasn't until, um, after the debt settlement place, I ended up going back into the court reporting world as a salesperson. And it was, I think I saw some, a friend of mine who was in culinary school and I was looking at all this creativity that they were doing. And I'm, I've always seen myself as a creative person and, and an artist. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, you know what? I do cook a lot and I enjoy cooking a lot. Um I wonder what that would be like to go to culinary school. And so I decided to go to culinary school and pursue um, being a chef.
0: Very nice. And so you went to Lake Cordon Bleu, which is a pretty well-renowned uh, culinary school out in California. Um, what was mm-hmm. that experience like?
1: It was amazing. I, I, um, I felt like a kid in a candy store. I didn't realize how much I loved cooking. I mean, I cooked, but it was like growing up, you know you're you eat the same stuff all the time. We had a lot of frozen food and I mean, you're not saying that people wouldn't cook, but when they did, it was always the same thing. So culinary yeah. school just opened my eyes up to like a whole different realm of cooking. And, and it was so much fun. I, those are probably the best times of my life. I, I really enjoyed it.
0: What was the fun experience you had there? Like what made it so fun?
1: Um, most of the chefs, my teachers, you could tell that they were really passionate about what they did. And um, it, every day was like a new experience. You know, we each, we had different courses and we would Um, go to different classes and have different chefs and that had different emphasis and each of those it was like a whole new world every time I went into a new class and I just found it to be exciting because of the variety and you know just I think I've always been open to learning a lot and I just um, because it was hands-on too I'm a hands-on learner I don't do well with just sitting down and taking notes and because my hands were in it and we were you know, actively doing things and learning new things every day. It just was really fun to me.
0: What is culinary school like? Cause for me, I'm thinking you just go <laughs> and you cook and then you cook some more and then you cook some more, but I'm sure it has to be deeper than that. When you're in school for a year, what kind of things are they trying to teach you when you're in culinary school?
1: It's a good question. Um, well, there, for one, there is a lot of cooking. Um, Le Cordon Bleu is a the basis behind that school. It's a French school. Um, they teach you French techniques. So you learn a lot of that. So you learn historically, you know, how they did things there. And you learn different terms. But then you also learn um, math, you know, because when you're in the kitchen, you have to do a lot of math. You learn about different cultures um, and why foods are you know, why this country has this type of food. And so it was interesting to to see that there was history and math and science, all these different things were also in the culinary realm, but which were all subjects that I didn't like. But <laughs> learning them, <laughs> learning them in that context actually made it more exciting.
0: Right. For me. Yeah. And was there a particular time whenever you like Like, was there a particular experience you had that was like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be? Do you remember like a certain experience in the in school that was like that?
1: Um, A lot of the teachers that I had would always tell me that they felt like I was naturally talented. Mm. A lot of a lot of people in cult, like to me, it came easy. It was not hard for me to do. I mean, there were things that were difficult to learn, like fabricating meat and stuff like that. But when it came to flavor, it was like, it just came natural to me. And because a lot of my chefs, each chef that I had was like, you have a gift. Like, this isn't something that everybody knows how to do. And I think once I heard that and I saw, like, the feedback that I would get, it kind of made me feel like, okay, maybe this is something I need to explore more.
0: Yeah, and when you were there, did you have a vision for what you wanted to do after?
1: Yes, I I knew right away that I wanted to have a catering business. Okay, um, a lot. Some people are there because you know they want to be a chef, or you want to work in a restaurant or whatnot. But I knew I wanted to do catering just because um, it's more personal. I knew I wanted my own business. I knew you know working under another chef would be great to learn. But I knew that I had my own ideas as to how I wanted to do things. And I still had the nonprofit in mind and was thinking, what kind of job can I have making food for people that will also line up with what I want to do eventually? And so I knew while I was still in school is um, when I made efforts to create my catering business.
0: So for culinary school, someone who wants to be a chef what are some of the main skills or characteristics that it takes to be a good chef? And uh, I'm sure everyone, you have a special gift. I've had plenty of your food. I've eaten some of your leftovers <laughs> for weeks um, because I love them. Um, you just freeze them, vacuum pack they last a long time. And, uh, but so you do have a gift. Um, but what, what, what kind of skills does someone have to have that they can tell that they would either be good there or that they can work on to get good at being a chef?
1: I feel like that's kind of hard for me to answer because, because it didn't come hard for me. But I think um, just looking at other people that were in the class, um, just being able to not just follow instructions, but to kind of have your idea of what you want, because, you know, in culinary school, we all had to make the same thing. It's not like, each person was given a different recipe. We all were given the same exact recipe, but somehow everybody's dish tastes different. Mm. And so it was kind of funny, like, how does that happen? But I think, um, being in culinary school, if you're open to learning and, and being willing to just go into the different cultures that you learn about and the, the basics, um, I think that that's really good. But It's once you're out of culinary school that really, I think, determines um, your strength and and if this is the right path for you.
0: Like if you can both follow instructions and be creative with your own ideas.
1: That and then just, you know, sometimes. Well, not sometimes. A lot of times when people go to culinary school, they kind of think, oh, they know everything. And then you go work under another chef or you work in another kitchen and you realize you don't really know much of anything
2: Yeah.
1: Um, because they, they can only teach you so much in culinary school. Every restaurant, every chef is different. And so it's actually being in those situations that will help you and let you know, because some people might do well in culinary school, but then go work at a restaurant and, and fall flat on their face. And so I think it's just, um,
0: Why does that happen? Do you think like, why do they fall flat on their face sometimes? Um, or what are some of the reasons why? And, And you've trained chefs. I've known you to hire a number of uh, sous chefs yeah. and other different types of people. So, when people come out looking like they're hot stuff, but then they'll fall on their face, what <laughs> normally is the cause?
1: I think it's partially um, not not being willing to learn outside of what you're doing. Like, culinary school is only going to teach you the basics. And so, you might be an expert at the basics, but once you've Get out of culinary school and you're actually plunged into that environment it's so much more than the basics and so if, if all you're doing is just studying the basics and you're not really trying to learn um, i think that's what makes it difficult and you know which is why when i was in culinary school i i started working for free at different restaurants and mm. hotels i worked at the beverly hills hotel And the Sunset Tower Hotel while in culinary school, while also working a full time job, because I didn't want that experience. I didn't want to get out of culinary school and then go in thinking I knew something. I wanted to be able to be in the thick of it while I was actually learning, too. So
0: I think what you just said there is super powerful. I hope people listen to that in the middle of all that beyond the learning is working for free, not because you should necessarily, you know, work Mm -hmm. forever for somebody for free, but you value the experience as a way to build up Mm -hmm. your own personal capital or your own value as a chef more than you Mm -hmm. value the particular paycheck. And sometimes people miss those opportunities because they're like, well, how Mm -hmm. much does it pay? Um, They they miss out on what you, what you were able to take by, by not taking maybe what you're quote unquote worth, so you got something out of it. Would mm-hmm. you agree?
1: I do. And you know what? It was not easy to work for these places for free because, for example, the Beverly Hills Hotel, I remember um, emailing the executive chef and saying, you know, I'm a student and I really would love to come and learn and I'd love to sit under you. And And he said no initially. Mm. He was like, you know what? Students come here all the time. They think it's a game. They play jokes. they like, do things and this is not a game like this is not and i and you know he just he was not open to me coming and so i went there Mm. (laughs) i went to the hotel and i asked to meet with the chef and i i explained to him that i was really passionate about it and i said i know that you may have had bad experiences from other chefs or other students but just give me one day i said if after the end of this day you don't find me um, helpful or you don't think that I'm cut out for this. I will gladly walk away, but just give me one day. And I, he gave me a day. And then at the end of that day, he was like, all right, you can, you can come on board. I'm still not going to pay you, but you can can come on board and you can uh, learn. And I did, I did. I was like, whatever hours you have, you know, and it was rough. Like I said, I was working a full-time job. I was still going to culinary school. So I gave up my weekends, but I learned so much being there. And I honestly believe that that experience is what allowed me to be able to start my own catering company.
0: So two things. One is you um, your sales skills ever since those days back in high school came through again. <laughs> like, please, can I stay with you just for one day? <laughs> And, uh, and it worked out, it worked out. And what, tell me a couple of things that you did learn there that helped you spur you on to eventually starting your own business.
1: Well, um, I think my first day I realized how much I didn't know. Mm.
2: So, humility. you know,
1: I, there were dishwashers. Yeah. There were dishwashers in that kitchen that knew more than me. Wow. And some students come out thinking I have this degree from the school or whatever, but there's people who started out in the dish room who have been around, they've seen it and they know more than you. They're Mm. directing you and so you definitely have to go into the situation with humility and it was hard because after culinary school, you think you're all that, you got your little degree and your first day, they're like, okay, go ahead and cut these onions and Mm. you're like, what? Onions? I want to make like a flambé. (laughs) I'm
0: ready. I'm (laughs) ready, chef. Hook me up.
1: (laughs) Right. They're like, no, go on and peel that garlic and you're like, what? Like, Mm. So you, you you felt, I felt kind of, you know, there was some pride in me, too, where I was like, I don't want to cut garlic or cut onions and peel garlic. Like, this is annoying. I want to do things that everybody else is doing, these people who are great. But then I had to realize, like, you can't always just start there. You have to start somewhere. And I'm grateful for that because there were some of the line cooks would come and tell me, like, Okay, you're cutting all the. You're like trying to peel this garlic one by one. Do you realize we feed a thousand people a day? You'll be here till next week, yeah. and they would show me like tricks and like things to do to make things go faster. Um, and so I started taking all of that in. It I was like a sponge, like every different department, whether it was garde manger, which they did the salads, um, the line cook. I would go to each area and watch them hmm. and see how they did things, and and then I would. You know, every once in a while they would let me help them do something. And so um, I never got to do anything amazing. Like I didn't even get to really plate a lot there, but I learned a lot of the basics and I worked in banquet. And so I saw how like putting out food quickly, what that should look like and how to prep and prepare. And I was just mentally taking notes during all of that.
0: Very nice. And you were there for around three or so months. Is that right? And then kind of where did you... What was the next step for you after that?
1: I was actually there a little longer than that. It was about, um, I think, four to five months. Okay. Um, And I was also working at another hotel, um, the Sunset Tower Hotel, which is also in Beverly Hills. Okay. And so once I... um, once once my time was done there, I decided to venture out on my own. You know, I I started my company while I was still in school, so I officially started, meaning came up with a name and had, you know, the business license, all the things that I needed to do. And while I was working at my job, um US Legal, which was another court reporting agency, um they would always serve I would notice the sales reps would always get lunch for different law firms or they would serve snacks or whatever. And so I would tell the sales reps like, why don't you let me make something Mm. for your, for your, um, your meeting or whatever. I would make desserts there or bring it to the office and, you know, they would be out. And then one of the court reporters one time, she was like, Oh, this is really good. I'm having an event at the end of the year, you know, for a hundred, 200 people. And would you be interested in catering it? And so um, I didn't know what I was doing, hmm. but I was so excited for the opportunity that I agreed to it, and that was my first job in in catering, and ever since then, never looked back.
0: Wow. So y- you, uh, you just have a knack. I-, I think more than most people I've met, and I've met them in many industries, whether it's financial services, real estate business, um, healthcare industry, you have to me, it seems a knack for finding a way intuitively to, to see possibilities for business. Um, Mm -hmm. And that led you to starting your own business. What, what, where do you think that comes from besides that time of having to find a place to stay after school? Where do you think that comes from in terms of um, being able to have that drive and that tenacity to, to be a, a uh, uh, sort of a smooth but persistent salesperson
1: <laughs> you know i just I always wanted to be successful I think um growing up mostly in the single parent household and seeing the struggle, I just remember thinking I didn't want that, mm. and um that I needed to be able to work hard and you know I wanted to be at a certain place and I think the combination of that and just being instilled with you know ethics and and um what's the word i'm looking for um just learning how to be responsible you know just having all of those things i i think it just came to me naturally really and and just that desire and drive to want to to make it and i knew that wasn't going to happen just sitting around so um
0: so you got up and did it and that became a lifelong habit it sounds like yes So you started the business, Ooh La La Catering. And I must say, when you eat the food, (laughs) it'll make you say Ooh La La my people. What, tell me about where the name came from, because I want the people to know. And what was the vision you had for your business?
1: Okay, so um, Ooh La La actually came from, I mean, it's a term that people have heard a lot. But when um, I was younger, one of... um, One of the times when I was living with family, I lived with my grandmother, who's from Panama, and so she has a really strong accent. I just love how she talks, but I just remember always um, when we would make food for her or for Christmas, when she would get a gift or anything that made her happy or she was excited about, she would always say, ooh la la, (laughs) and she would say it in her cute Panamanian accent. It just... I always just remembered that and it always would make me smile. And so when I was trying to think about a name for the business, I was like, you know, that same feeling, that vibe that I get when my grandma says that, like, I want people to feel that. And so I want, I wanted to name my business after her, um, just so that it would be a constant reminder of my upbringing and just, um, of her and, and just the joy that came from living with her.
0: That's awesome. And and like I said, it does apply. You started off with that one piece of business from <laughs> the um, court reporting business. How did you look mm-hmm. to build your business from there? Did you have a business plan or were you just kind of going for it? Or what was your idea of how to build your business?
1: You know, I... I don't, I remember coming up with a business plan, but I don't remember it in detail. I just remember what my ultimate goal was. And I know that, you know, I still want to just have the nonprofit. And I thought, you know, in order to have this nonprofit where I can, you know, work with inner city youth, I need to be able to have clients that can pay well so that I can have money to save in order to open up a building. Um. I knew that I wanted to cater towards celebrities, not just because they were celebrities, but I feel like people who are in that position, number one, are always looking for an opportunity to give back. And then secondly, if I'm dealing with like inner city youth and I and I have celebrity clients, I was thinking to myself, maybe they'd be willing to come and talk to the kids about what inspired them and how they got to where they are so that these kids that are in these different areas that feel like defeated... Would have someone that maybe came from the same background as them, encouraging them to move forward and to continue. So that was my my goal.
0: So how did it build? So from that first piece of business, what what came next? Like what was that? What did it look like to be there in the early years of Dulaa?
1: It was rough. I'm not gonna lie. Um, you know, I I did a lot of things for free uh, initially, and I did a lot of things at a very discounted rate because, um, I think for two reasons, one, I don't know that I a hundred percent believed in myself up front. Uh, I think I was really nervous and I didn't know that if people would buy food for me, I was thinking like, why would anyone buy food? And then I also didn't know if people would. So I was doing a lot of things to get my name out there. Um, so I wasn't charging people a whole lot and it, you know, even working at, um, farmer's markets and, um, you know, initially working at a farmer's market, I didn't charge anything. I was just like, okay, let me find out what food is not here. And I'm going to make that food and I would go and just give stuff away. And then when people started requesting it, I was like, okay, now it's time to start charging for this. But, um, it, it was definitely not easy. Um, and there was a lot of um, growing pains, definitely with the business. Um,
0: what was like one of the know, one big of my pains big... in the beginning?
1: Well, one of my first ever like official accounts that I had was with a yacht club um, in San Pedro, and it was a predominantly Caucasian yacht club with um, mostly older people. And, um, that was the very first account that I got. Um, and it was a very hard experience for me. It was, it was really rough. Mm. I, there were lots of nights that I cried, um, after being there because of the blatant racism Mm. and just not just that, but the fact that I was a female and I was young, there were just a lot of people trying to sabotage me and my business. And it made me question myself and doubt myself a lot. Um, what were they trying to do? I'm dealing with Um, well, they were trying to get me out of there. Um, there was like a committee basically that, and there was a guy, the guy who ended up hiring me was like, you know, we need something new and fresh here. He was amazing. Um, and he was like, we, you know, your food is great. And I think this club really needs to have some diversity. And Mm. so he was, he was kind of like trying to change things up and, and bring things to like more, you know, this age, not back in the day. And I don't think they were ready for that. And so there would just be a lot of things that were done um, to try to sabotage my business. Like, you know, like we would leave and leave the ovens off. We'd turn everything off, do everything. And somehow somebody would turn it on, making it look like we were being irresponsible or, you know, just little things like that. Like one time there was a gas leak and we called the gas company. I smelled gas and I remember calling the gas company and they said, you know, this is dangerous. You can't be here. We need to fix this situation. And people would come and they would reserve spots for dinner to come. And what happened is that um, instead of telling people that there was a gas Issue and it was unsafe and that We were told that we couldn't be there They just told people that we just canceled Dinner service because we didn't want to be there oh. Which made us look bad You know so there were just a lot of Little things like that that were Happening um, And it, it just it was really hurtful And but you know What I'm, I'm really grateful that That was my first big experience Because that taught me in the beginning That you need to have thick skin Yeah, And it taught me in the beginning you know, the adversity that comes from this, I didn't even realize I would have that type of adversity. And sure. I think had that happened later in my career, it would have been a lot harder. So it was definitely rough, but it was rough right out the gate. So it, it made me like stronger a lot sooner, wow. I believe.
0: That's wild. That's really wild. How long did you stick it yeah. out there?
1: Um, I was there, I believe, for seven months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and so was that the only gig you were working or was this like the biggest account? And then you had other things going on still catering at the same time.
1: That was the biggest one. Um, I was still doing little odds and ends jobs like I because I didn't have enough business to carry myself. I would contact other chefs and caterers and, you know, help them. I signed up with temp agencies, but I made sure that I was doing things. I didn't just take any job. I wanted jobs that were still in the industry that I wanted to be in so that I could be learning, you know. So if I took a temp job as a server, because in my mind, I thought one day I'm going to hire servers. So I want to see what it's like to work with other servers and see, like, what it's like to be a server. And so when I would take these different jobs, I took jobs in, you know, prep, cook, dishwasher, server because I knew that eventually I was going to be hiring people for those roles. And I wanted to be able to say, like, I know what it's like to be in these positions. So
0: Very nice. I, You're, you're coming up here on almost nine years of business, which, you know, nine out of 10 businesses fail in the first five years. Out of those ones that succeed for five years in the next five years, nine out of 10 of those end up failing. But you're pers- pushing on persevering and even doing well. Um you wanted to build a, a celebrity clientele and I know I've seen the photos that you've had a number of celebrity clients. Do <laughs> you want to talk about some of the cool experiences you had working with um celebrities so far?
1: Well, I there's one in particular that I would I would love to share because I'm not really starstruck. You know, like I've never really you know that it's cool when you see celebrities and stuff, but there are two people two celebrities that i thought to myself if i ever cater for one of these or saw one of them at my event i would just about lose it (laughs) and one of them is lorenz tate okay you know i've always loved him i you know from love jones all the different movies that i've seen him in uh i watched all of his stuff and So there was a company that contacted me about catering like a holiday party and it was a really last minute request. And so, um, I was thinking to myself, like, I don't really want to, um, do this. Like they called me at the last minute. And then I remember the person working for me at the time sent me a link to the website. Like, Hey, you might want to check out this company. You might want to do this job. So it was a company called Riveting Entertainment and the owners, the partial owners are, um, people on staff there are like Chris Brown and Lorenz Tate and all that. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, I'll do this right. job. And so I remember um, telling all of my staff that day, like it's possible that Chris Brown or Lorenz Tate could be here today and some other celebrities. And you guys are not to ask for autograph. You know, you need to act cool, be, you know, fine with that. And so as I'm like telling them all of this stuff, <laughs> I turn around and Lorenz Tate is like right there. And I, I it took everything within me <laughs> to not fall out. I just couldn't believe it. Cause it was like, this is somebody who I have like watched in movies. I really liked him. I, he was like my celebrity crush, I guess you could say. Right. And so he was there at my event. But then to take it even further, you know, he tried my food and, and came and talked to me and was like, you know, you're really talented. This food is amazing. Um, his brothers, one of his brothers was there who's a comedian. I can't think of his name, but they were like making jokes about stuff. But they both really love the food. And, you know, he was saying how his wife bakes and how he does a lot of house parties and that I should come over and cook. And I, it just felt surreal to me. Did you pass I, I didn't out? even believe that I did not but I was really close. <laughs> and it just, it just was, it was a very special day for me because it just, I don't know. It just, it did something for me Yeah, to me that day, just to see that.
0: I mean, if you, if your cool. idea has been to build a market to do business for celebrities and there you are with one him thanking you for your food mm-hmm. and that's the, like you hit the top of the mountain
1: <laughs> yeah it was it was a pretty amazing experience
0: any other cool stories like that you could think about
1: i think another interesting one that you know he's not everybody's favorite but <laughs> Um, it was definitely interesting um, being a chef for Bill Handel. Yeah, um, he's he's on a radio show, very very successful radio show, AM six forty, and he's been a ta- on the talk radio show for over twenty years. And I didn't know who he was. I he, his name meant nothing to me when I initially met him, but um, I just remember going to his house for the tasting. He was just a very interesting person. He's a very controversial in the way he talks and things he says. But the day that I went to his house and did the tasting, he said to me, like, nobody, including me and my wife, have ever been able to let or um, get my kids to eat vegetables. The fact that you got my kids to eat vegetables, you're hired. Like right now, I'm hiring you. And I was just like, oh. But what was crazy is when I left his house, I remember calling my mom, to tell her like, mom, there's some guy named Bill Handel. And like, he just hired me to be um, his chef. And my mom's like, what? And she's like, I've been listening to him for, for, um, over 20 years. For 20 years, she had been (laughs) listening to his radio show. And I was like, you know, this guy. Yeah. I used to listen to him. And so, yeah. so it was just kind of funny that, you know, somebody who my mom, um, who she was really into was somebody that I ended up being able to cook for.
0: You've had, um, and we could spend another hour talking about different experiences that you've had with celebrities like that. And I'd love to hear any more if you have them. And at the same time, um, yeah. it, can you, it doesn't seem like you, you can or intended to build your business solely on that. You also have other lines of business, businesses that you keep in there and build in order to have a full, you know, Mm -hmm. ongoing revenue stream. What are some other areas that you do um, catering for?
1: Um, We also do a lot of corporate offices. Um, We do weddings, um, private events. We do a lot of things on set, like commercials, TV shows, music videos. Um, So it's, it's definitely a large variety of also for the last, I think, five years have been catering to a rehab um, and a sober living house for teenagers. And so that has been something that I've been um, doing for the last five years and that's five days a week. And so these teenagers that are trying to adjust to life after having addictions, um, I'm, I'm involved with their life and used to do cooking classes with them just to teach them how to cook for themselves once they're on their own. Um, because some of them are close to turning 18 where they're going to be on their own. And so we just, we try to do a lot of different types of um, catering.
0: What's your, do you have a favorite thing that you do out of all of those different types of things?
1: You know, my favorite are the smaller events, Okay. the, the small dinner parties, just because it's more personal, You know, um, I love what I do and I love cooking. And sometimes when you do big events, like you don't really get to interact with people. You're in the kitchen. But when you do a smaller event, you get to see people's faces when they're eating the food. You get to engage with people. You get it's more personal. And it's whenever I do those types of events that I just like really get excited and just walk away smiling. Mm -hmm. Like, man, this is exactly what I want to do.
0: Do you have a, a particular private dinner that you thought was really nice and special that you did?
1: Well, I would say one um, that was really meaningful to me was actually last year. And it was one that I put on. Um, I've been kind of toying with the idea of doing like a underground supper club, yep. uh, which would, the purpose of that would be to unite people who would not normally be around each other. So whether it be celebrities or whether it be just someone from down the street, I wanted to create an atmosphere for people to come together to dine, get to know each other, network. And last February I did, I hosted my first one, which I believe there were um, 20 people there. Right, And I was just very excited doing it just to see people from different backgrounds coming together, different walks of life. And then I feel like that was, one of the best menus that i've ever put out and so just the work that went into that and seeing everyone's face and just seeing that event take place and it it just it warmed my heart it really did
0: what you said you put a good menu together what makes a good menu like how would you how do you craft a good menu for a meal
1: I wanted to challenge myself. Um, I think sometimes with catering, it gets really easy because you're doing a lot of things in bulk and, you know, you're not really doing that much complicated or that many complicated things. Um, and I wanted to do some things that were a little bit more complicated that were are going to take me learning again, you know, sometimes it's hard when you are the boss because you don't really have anyone to learn from. And so I was like, I want to create a menu that I need to learn how to do some of these things. And um, I also really love cooking seasonally. And so I like to find what's in season and create menus based off of that because the food is just so much better. And so it was a combination of having the seasonal ingredients and creating dishes that um, I wasn't familiar with. Um, so it, it challenged myself and my team. And I think it was just that much more rewarding once everything came out and everyone loved it. So,
0: Do you remember what the menu was?
1: I do. Uh, so we started out with a an amuse-bouche, which is basically just a bite. It's just waking up your palate to get you ready. And I wanted to do three different bites. So one was... The, my braised beef short rib with a truffle mashed potato. That, that's that been by far like the industry favorite. So I wanted to introduce that. And then we did scallops with a um, chorizo and a cilantro pat, smoked paprika butter. And then I wanted to do a kind of like a cocktail, but not in cocktail form. So what we ended up doing was like a um, a gelatin sangria. So it was a sangria, but it was, made in a gelatin form and then when people bit into it like it kind of had the liquid of the sangria come out. So that that was the bite. Then after that um I I played a little bit with some molecular gastronomy. That now that is I feel like this industry too many chefs like overuse that, but okay. it was definitely fun.
0: What is molecular to, gastronomy? Um, <laughs> that sounds
1: explosive. <laughs> It can be. It really can. <laughs> That's just adding science to food. So it's doing really cool things. Like what we did is I, I we made a salad and um, there's a, this chem, not a chemical, it's like a powder that if you mix it with a liquid, it will, the whole thing will turn to a powder. But then once it touches something that has liquid, it turns back to liquid. Oh,
2: wow. So
1: basically I wanted to create this salad and then have this line of powder that was on the plate that once they put that in their mouth it turned back to olive oil and so um it was really fun like we did it it worked out and um we ended up using these tomatoes um and doing a I think it was a tomato with feta and basil or something like that and um and then I did a beet and strawberry consommé. Now I hate beets. I've always hated them. Mm. But I figured out a way to mix it with strawberry and some other herbs and the consommé is pretty much like a soup, but it's clear like you, you it doesn't have anything really floating in there. It's something that you can see straight through. It's concentrated. And so um that turned out really good. I was really surprised, but we did that and then there were three meat courses. This was like a big dinner. Jeez. So one was a, <laughs> it was a braised pork belly,
2: mm.
1: um, and we, we used um, rainbow chard. But instead of just using the leaves of the rainbow chard, I wanted to use the stems because they're really pretty. They're like red and yellow and orange, and so we pickled them. And we used that as a garnish. And then I took the green leaf and we fried it as like a crunchy element to the dish. Right. And um, then we also did sea bass, which is my favorite fish. Um, A Chilean sea bass dish with a black risotto. And then we ended the meat course with a filet mignon. And I don't remember what, what what, what we served with it, but... Um, I was trying to do this really cool thing where it was covered and you put smoke under it. And then when you remove the lid, like all this smoke comes out. Uh, so we tried that. And then our la- our dessert course was a, a beetroot profiterole. Okay. Which is like, it's kind of like a cream puff type yeah. dessert. That was really hard to make. So
0: That sounds yeah, like yeah. an extraordinary <laughs> amount of creativity.
1: <laughs> It was fun for sure.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that amazes me cuz again, I, you know, I know you personally for a while now. I think almost almost 10 years, nine, no, well, maybe like 8 years, 8 or 9 years. And um <clears throat> I've eaten a lot of your food, praise the lord. And um I've also seen you do different menus and different events and things like that and it's just incredible how many different ways you have to make a meal creative um where does that come from in you uh how how do you how do you do that what helped you develop that diversity to do such different kinds of things like what where does that come from
1: (laughs) i think it's i think i might have add (laughs) like to be honest everybody
0: got add these days
1: I've always, I just remember always growing up, like I get bored really mm, easy yeah. and it's like, I need something that, that excites me or something that is, you know, I think that's why I love art and, and like things like that so much because of the creativity and you can constantly change things up. Sure. And I, I think that's where it comes from at being a chef too, for me, it's like, I get bored making the same stuff all the time. So I, I'm always trying to look for things to do to f- switch things up or to shock people or Take something that people normally don't like and and try to get them to like it. And and I think it helps me because if I was just making the same stuff over and over again, I I don't know if I would be able to do that.
0: Right. Yeah, no, that (laughs) makes total sense. Um, Have you ever like so I I obviously like probably half the people listening watch a lot of those cooking shows on the Food Network and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Have you ever either been on any of those shows or would you want to be on those shows? Because it looks like you could win.
1: (laughs) So, them, yes. Um, of all, I was asked to be on Hell's Kitchen. Okay. Um, but I chose not to. Um, I declined that opportunity because I, I believe that food really should be about food, and that people should be fascinated with the craft and really want to learn. And I felt like that show. No, no offense to anyone that's on the show, but for me personally, I felt like it was about drama. Mm and not, it wasn't really about the craft and i didn't want to be on a show that was going to like bring out the worst side of me sure. cuz you know sometimes i can have a temper a lot <laughs> of chefs do and um i didn't want to portray that about myself right. on tv and yeah. so but the two shows that i love um are chop and um iron chef that's what i'm thinking because about i believe yeah, both of those shows are amazing and they're really about the food, they're about the creativity, about the chef like really, you know, are do you know how to utilize these ingredients? Right. And which is why um I have never been on Chop but it's definitely something that I want to do.
0: Well, if you out there listening and you got an open Chop slot, Kendra should be on your show. She would be an amazing <laughs> person on there and the food will be good, I guarantee you. Just mark her in for the win already. <laughs> Besides, so we're going to try to make that, figure out how we can make that happen. Now, besides having a an amazing menu and an awesome ability to cook, um, what does it take to run a good business as a chef? Like, what, what do you think you've done well?
1: You know, I think I'm still learning and growing. Um, I definitely have improved. But I, I think, number one, it takes a lot of patience um, and learning from your mistakes. Um, I, I believe that in the beginning, I just, I didn't know how to interact with staff very well. And so, um, over the years I've lost a lot of good staff and I'm just being honest. It's some of that was because of them and some of that was because of me. And so I've just learned that, you know, there has to be compromise. You have to be someone that's willing to, um, train your staff. Training is really important Mm. um, and you need to be able to spend time with them. And um, I think that's something that I've definitely learned over the years. And then just having wise counsel. I think anyone that tries to go into business um, should definitely sit down with people who have been in that business for a while and pick their brain you know ask them questions about how they do certain things i mean how it's hard when you're on your own and you you've never you don't come from a family that has anyone in that industry cuz you're really learning everything by yourself and so i would have been crazy to think that i could do it all on my own so right. i definitely talked to as many people as i could finding out about pricing like how do you know how to price things or what type of things should not be on the menu or, you know, what type of clients should I take and what should, you know. So I think it's just sitting down with people, realizing that even though you are the owner, or you're in charge, that you still need to have humility. You still need to be willing to learn um, and be patient.
0: So it sounds like um, the willing to learn and having Um, a mentor to kind of walk you through the early parts Mm -hmm. or at least teach you some of the game and set you off in the right direction Mm -hmm. are big. If someone came and asked you, um, you know, and you had 10 or 15 minutes to say, to spend time with them, um, what's, what's one thing you would tell them or maybe two that they should keep in mind besides this thing of how to price and, um, and having humility and patience, as well as the training piece you mentioned, what's what's one or two things you tell them? Hey, these are some things to keep in mind if you want to be a success in the long run.
1: Um, I think I'm going to tackle that as uh, revolving around staff. Yeah, I think in the beginning um, when you're starting out, like you're really trying to watch your money. And you're really trying to be conservative with, like, what you pay. And so a lot of times people tend to um, hire people and not pay as much or, you know, look for people that don't really have a lot of experience. But I I don't always think that's the best way. I think sometimes it's necessary to spend a little extra money on people, staff that know what they're doing, because those people are really going to help you go to the next level. Right. Um, and you're gonna have less turnaround um, when you have staff like that, and then um there's someone that you had interviewed before that I actually sat down with Kayla
2: okay Griffin
1: we we sat down and we talked about a lot of these things uh, with her opening her um, store and just me doing catering and I learned so much from her mm. to be like she. She, I, I've been doing this longer than her, but she, we, we have different industries. We're we're in the same industry, but kind of have different roles. But she is so wise. Mm. That girl is so wise, and she there's a lot of things that she said that really helped me and um made me think a lot. And and it had to do with like being a good communicator, like you know how you interact with your staff, and just a lot of things that I had to look at myself and be like, wow. I'm not doing these things Mm. and I really need to step it up. So I think too realizing that a mentor is not always just someone who's older than you or, you know, sometimes you just need people that have a different outlook than you. Um, Sitting down with other people who've had success and, and really just kind of talking that thing out. And um, I think she's amazing at what she does. And, and I'm not saying that I, I have made it, you know, I still have, room to grow there's a lot of things that I still need to learn and grow from but I definitely would say from the time I was at that yacht club today there's been a lot of growth
0: well there has to be to have the success you have over a long period of time there has to have been um and even in where you've cooked so I think the last kind of chef question I like to ask or maybe two more one of them is um where do you cook like people may want to, someone listening may say, hey, you know, I can cook really well. Or they may be in culinary school thinking, yeah, you know, I want to maybe start my own business. Um, where, what actual physical locations can you just cook out of your house? Or, you know, just should I buy one of those little carts and make that the spot? You know, like, <laughs> where have you cooked and, and what's the well, good place to go? Well,
1: um, you cannot, I mean, now the health department has made it to where you can cook at your home, okay. but there's limitations. Um, you can only make certain things and you can only make a certain amount of money doing it from your home. And, you know, in the beginning, that's where I started. I'm just going to be real. That's where most most chefs started from their home. Right. But, you know, as things have changed and rules, like it's gotten a lot harder and sometimes it can be frustrating, but it's to, it's actually to protect people. You know, because if the health department, we don't know what, what condition people's homes are in, Right. you know, nobody can tell that. And so the health department is basically trying to make an environment that's safe for the people that, um, are consuming our food. And so, but in the beginning, I definitely started at home. And then, um, from there, I just found different shared kitchen spaces that I could uh, rent out and, um, for many years, I was a chef at a fraternity, and they let me use their kitchen um, for a while. But currently, we are—I have a private kitchen, which is in the city's called Beverlywood. So it's kind of like in between Culver City, Beverly Hills, and Hollywood, mm-hmm. kind of like that area. Yeah, and so that is where we currently are located.
0: Very nice. And um, is there a particular type of food or cuisine that you prefer to cook?
1: <laughs> That's so funny. You—if know, I had a nickel for every time somebody asked me that question,
0: you would have to be a chef. Be
1: yeah, right you would have to be no
0: chef. You hire someone <laughs> else to run your business and keep all the
2: nickels.
1: <laughs> Most people say, "Ask me what type of food is. Do I have a specialty?" Okay. Um and to, to kind of answer that and your question, I don't have any particular specialty. I, um, love cooking food that's in season and using seasonal ingredients. And so, but I also love different cultures. So we try to make a lot of different foods, but I will say growing up in San Diego, um, I've always loved Mexican food and I've always loved Latin cuisine of, of any type. So, and then my grandmother is also Panamanian, so island. So I feel like I've, there's always kind of a Latin island fusion that I like to incorporate into foods. And so um, th- those would be my favorites to, to cook. Okay. Definitely. And
0: on the point of um, you being able to adapt to anything and learn new stuff, can you tell the story that you told me about the Asian couple whose wedding you did? and
1: um what you oh. do for them yes oh wow i forgot about that that was that was definitely a challenge but it was a rewarding challenge um so there was a couple um the bride was japanese and the groom was from kansas um so american and they wanted to do a japanese american fusion wedding and i was thinking which i got that job Ironically, because another caterer was going out of business, they had already booked the client and they reached out to me like, Hey, you have all these great reviews on, Yelp. we're going out of business. Would you like to take over this client for us? So uh-huh. that was very interesting. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but the couple lived in Texas and so I was thinking, okay, um, how are we going to do this tasting? And so they were saying, well, actually you're going to do the tasting with our parents, um, the Japanese parents. And I was thinking, oh, okay. Um, And so they told me the dishes that they wanted to have at their wedding of which one of them, um, I had no clue what it was. I never tasted it, never seen it. It was called ozoni soup. And so I remember doing a little research about the soup and it was like a traditional like Japanese New Year soup. And so I thought to myself like, I can't go to these parents' home like making some fake like ozoni soup. I need to know the real deal. No ozoni in the box. Exactly. (laughs) They would have kicked me out. So I'm like, I need to make this as authentic as possible. But how do you do that when you've never tried it? So I went on to trusty old Google, and I started looking up, you know, this soup and the different recipes. But I could tell just from the recipes that it, they were not authentic mm. because I'm like, there's no way that I can make an authentic Japanese soup and be able to go down to Rouse and get everything. Like <laughs> I, I should have to go to like a, a Japanese market to get right. some of this stuff. So all of the recipes that I saw in there, I knew, and, and this was just instinct as a chef because sure. I just figured this isn't right. So I ended up finding this video on YouTube with this really older, like Japanese, like grandma. And she was making the soup and she was not speaking in English. It was in Japanese and the words were coming up and the words were not in English. The words were like transliterated. It was like Japanese, but she was making the soup. And so I, I just remember watching her intently like, okay, she added this. I didn't know what these things were. So I did screenshots of everything and I found a Japanese store and I went in and I said, help me find these things. And so all of those things were in the store. They got it. And then I went home and I just continued to watch her and I just made the soup. Oh, so I wow. made it. And um, when I went to the tasting with the parents, I remember when they, when they opened the door, they kind of looked like they weren't you expecting. You ain't Japanese.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: they were like, Maybe oh. you're the Kansas part
0: of the family or something. <laughs>
1: they were like okay and so um it was definitely intimidating but i made the soup for them and they really liked it the only feedback they had for me is that they wanted there's a broth that you make for the soup which is using seaweed and they said that they wanted to taste a little bit more of the seaweed mm. and that was the only feedback that they gave me and so um for the wedding i just studying japanese culture it's you know, food is really important and they're all about like precision and all of these things. And so I wanted to bring that part of the culture to them and their wedding. And so what we did is all of the ingredients that were in the soup, we hand cut every single thing, made sure everything looked, you know, very precise, very neat. And we had it sitting in the bowls, um, when guests arrived. And then once they were ready to eat, we had servers come around and they had little porcelain pitchers with the broth and poured the broth into the bowl with the other ingredients. And so it was, um, I got so many compliments from the family after they were bowing and, you know, just thanking me. And I, I just, that was a very rewarding experience.
2: Very nice.
1: Definitely.
0: Yeah. I'm always impressed by how you can come up with you, I don't know. I've seen you cook so many different things, so many different ways. It's always super impressive. And I think that to me is like, um, you know, it's a, it's a skill that people don't often think about, but you've honed it to a fine, you know, artwork, almost kind of a craft.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What's your favorite thing to eat? Oh, to cook yourself. That is, I or do you just go by and get a burger from uh, McDonald's or something?
1: <laughs> I have been known to do that. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know. that. That's a really hard question. I'm so picky. I'm so picky about what I eat. And to be honest, a lot of places I go to, I'm not very impressed with.
2: Mm.
1: Um, I will say, though, there's a place in Texas mm. that I went to. And it, I would have to say that today is probably my favorite place to eat, which is called um, Whiskey Cake. Okay. And um, they make amazing brisket. Literally, there's not anything on their menu that's not good. And I'm not usually like a southern, you know, I love Latin food. I love island food. So I wasn't sure what I was going to think. But the brisket that they make, um, this whiskey cake, which is, that's the name of the restaurant, but it's a dessert that they make. And I'm telling you. No one will ever be disappointed eating there. Hmm. It's it's really amazing.
0: Well, I'm gonna have to go check so it out I, if there's one you close. Know,
1: you have to. Yes, you do have to. It is, that place is awesome. But um, I love. I personally love Latin food, and so um, going to Old Town San Diego, they you know make tortillas right on the corner. They'll be making strawberry and chocolate tortillas, and you know I really love to eat down there, but. I don't know where where I love to eat out here. Okay. Or what I love to eat.
2: No,
0: those those are some good examples. And there's a whiskey cake that's in the next city over from my house. So that sounds like a date night to me. We ready to go. <laughs> you have to go. Oh, we go. Their going.
1: breakfast is amazing. Their lunch is amazing. Everything there. I mean, you can't go wrong. That that place. I'm very impressed by them.
0: So you've had a ton of success in your career. Um, there have obviously, like any business, been up and down, ups and downs. Um, and, and I, I'm, you know, impressed by it. Aside from the, the staffing issues you dealt with early on, is there anything else that you would do differently, um, to, to maybe have had a little more success in certain areas where you didn't, it didn't go well as first, the first time through?
1: I think two things. One is pricing. I would have gotten a handle on that a lot sooner. Okay. And the other thing is, the amount of time that I went with discounting and doing things for free, just to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think it's definitely necessary, but sometimes I think that people do that out of fear of failure, of like, you know, if I put myself out there and I charge these prices, like, what if no one's going to buy? What if, you know, and so I think if I could go back and do things differently, I would have definitely maintained confidence a lot quicker and and just realize that I need to and it's okay I'm not trying to say it's not okay to discount people definitely I think you should but I also think that you set the tone for for how your business grows And a lot of business uh, growth comes from word of mouth. And so if you kind of start out one way, like it can kind of be a little tough to get from underneath that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Like if people are, you're known for giving discounts, that's what people are going to come to you looking for. Yeah. Yeah. What is it with Mm -hmm. pricing that you would have gotten a handle on?
1: Just learning how to price things. It's really, it's, it takes a lot of math to figure that out. Um, And I think it's something that I'm still working through these days, but, you know, just trying to figure out expenses and, you know, how much you should be spending with food costs. Like, you know, I learned, I learned a little late in the game that we were spending most of our pricing was being too much of it was being spent on expenses and on food costs. And I learned from some other successful catering companies, like what percentage should actually be going, uh, what whatever you bring in, your revenue or um, what should be actually going toward food costs, what should be going toward staff. You know, I didn't know that kind of stuff before. And I, I think I was just creating prices based on what made, seemed to make sense yeah. to me in my mind without doing the math behind
0: it. Do you have a like... Um what do you call it? Like rules of thumb for that now? Like for this is how much should go towards food costs. This is how much towards staff. Do you have any rules of thumb for that now?
1: Well, so a lot of the successful, um, really successful catering businesses or restaurants would say that you shouldn't spend more than 20 to 25% on food costs. um, and then staffing, I believe, um, is supposed to be like 30% or something like that. Yeah. Um, but the food costs, well, I'm telling you now, you know, they say you're supposed to spend 20 to 25%. I was spending like 50%. Oh. Like 50% was going toward food costs. Mm. So that was definitely a problem.
0: So you either weren't charging and, enough um, or you weren't buying in, in the right quantities or from the right places to get the right exactly. costs.
1: Exactly exactly yeah a little bit of both and then just just realizing like you know sometimes you have to do things yourself instead of buying you know chicken that's already cut and portioned and all that you might have to do the work yourself and get the chicken that needs to still be portioned and cut but it's you know i i went with convenience instead of um instead of being frugal and like, you know, making sure that I was doing things right. And I definitely would have changed that mm. had I known that up front.
0: Very nice. Well, so what about who in your lifetime have been some important mentors? Did you ever find any, it sounds like you found a couple of catering companies who've been some good mentors in your life.
1: So there was, um, there was one lady that I worked for, um, did food styling. That was actually another thing that I did um, before things took off for me. And she was definitely hard on me and I didn't always like her hmm. <laughs> just to be honest, but I learned a ton from her. Um, I just, I learned about just the industry as a whole work ethic when you're, she does a lot of things on set and so just learning with that cuz you know when you're doing things on set it's like a whole different ball game than just doing like catering for an office and so i just watched her intently and i learned a lot from her um so it wasn't like a you know we met on a regular basis and she kind of dropped knowledge it was just like you know what i i want to work for her because she's amazing at what she does and and while i'm doing that i'm going to take notes and so um yeah. So she's definitely somebody that, that I learned a lot from while being in the industry.
0: And in terms of, um, or was there anybody else that you had?
1: Um, while this person wasn't in my life long, um, it was the chef that gave me that opportunity at the Beverly Hills hotel. Right. Um, he is an amazing chef and, um, he gave me a lot of really good advice. He'd, one of the things that he told me was that you need to make sure that you're constantly eating at different places.
2: Hmm. You need
1: to develop your palate. If you stick to the same foods all the time, you're not going to grow and develop your own palate. So he's like, it might sound crazy, but you need to eat out a lot. Hmm. And and I was like, what? You know, so he was the one showing me and telling me how to develop my palate. He was the one that was telling me what type of knives that I needed to have and, you know, what types of culinary books that I should be reading and just the constantly learning and growing. And so he he really um he impacted my life a lot. Just number 1 by giving me an opportunity to work at that hotel and then 2 by going a step further and, and giving me additional wisdom you know he was really amazing
0: if a person is trying to have variety in there because you mentioned like eating the same thing at home all the time and and we do that we have Mm -hmm. it's so funny man my kids when we're driving home and they ask what do we have for dinner chicken and rice you know because it's like that's what we always eat it's at least two three times a week how can a person develop you know some variety i'm asking this for myself and maybe a couple other people who are listening And, um, and does it have to be so expensive to do that
1: Right. No, it doesn't have to be expensive at all. Um, I think, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with cookbooks and recipes and looking um, online for things like that. I personally believe that a recipe is just a guideline. You know, it's not something that you look at and you're like, oh, I have to do everything exactly like this. Right. But sometimes I will just go online and I'll type in like, you know, uh, different types of chicken or, you know, and I'll just kind of look at different recipes and kind of get inspiration from different things. And then I'll just try it out. I think that's the one thing is just actually trying things out, you know, being willing to shop at different places. There's different like, there's the um, Asian markets, there's the Latin food stores, and going to different markets, you'll you'll find that you're going to have access to things that you wouldn't see at a normal grocery store. Right. And so, I think even venturing out and trying, you know, just things that don't look familiar, if you're not sure what it is, like, looking it up, and um, I've come up with a lot of really good recipes by doing that.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I got to leave my wife alone then, man. She's always experimenting and never following the recipe. And I'm like, girl, just follow the recipe. Good. And, you know, because I'm OCD. You have ADD. I got OCD, you know. Um And so I'm like, you got to look, it says two thirds of a teaspoon. This looks a lot like three quarters to me, you know. <laughs> so I got to, I got to, I think I got to go apologize to her after this conversation. <laughs> and uh because she. She does experiment a lot and she honestly, she comes up with a lot of good different types of foods. A lot of new things we've eaten is because she's tried out different types of recipes. That's a good, that's definitely good advice that I need to follow myself. Um, (laughs) If one last um, couple questions. So you had that experience of the yacht club with, you know, overt forms of racism and different things like that. Um, What would you maybe change to make it easier for other people in the industry? If you could, are there any obstacles that you would take out of the way?
1: There are obstacles. I think, you know, it's kind of interesting that professionally, like if you look at non-professionally, I think a lot of people think of women like cooking and being in, in the home and, you know, making food. But when you look professionally, it's actually, there's not a lot of women who are chefs. right? And so there there's a lot of adversity to um, deal with, in the industry, um, there's not a lot of black chefs, uh, especially executive chefs and owners. There's not a lot of women. Now you're starting to see more younger chefs come up. But when you're young, female and African-American, it is just kind of a, a lot of things set against you. Yeah, And I really don't know how to change that other than just uh, people that have that passion and have that desire like going out there because I feel like the more people see us the more it, it will be accepted you know and and not shying away from opportunities just because it's uncomfortable right so there's been plenty of people who I've gone to their home you know when I'm going to certain zip codes I already know what it's going to be when they see me but mm. it's like you know and I used to feel like I have to name drop like oh I took for this person did this this, this. and it's like no I have my own skill set and I think it's just going in with confidence and being excellent at what you do. And just like any other career, when people see that excellence and they see, you know, you really putting that effort in, I think that will change things. But we we need more people out there doing it. There's not a lot of um, there's not a whole lot of African American chefs out there. Hmm. There definitely are some out there, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot more people who want to that either have some fears or they, you know, they're not sure how they'll be accepted. But I think more people need to go out there and do it and show, you know, so that there will be more acceptance.
0: That's very good. I think uh, Kelvin King, who I interviewed, who does construction, was saying a similar thing about not a lot of uh, black folks or people of color in the construction business. So he's given a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. for folks or try to reach out where he can to help there. Um, and it sounds mm-hmm. like that's the same thing you're encouraging. What's the status of the nonprofit?
1: Well, (laughs) it's still in the works. Um, I can't report anything as far as the name or all I can tell you right now is that it's definitely something that I haven't given up on. Um, The business kind of took me for turns that I didn't anticipate business got a little crazy and it did for a minute. It did kind of take me off course of what my original plan was, but Recently, um, it's something that I've been really working toward coming up with a name and a location. And, you know, so really soon I'll be able to report um, more information about the nonprofit, but it's definitely still in the works.
0: Very nice. Um, What are three books you would give as a gift?
1: I think one book, uh, it's it's called Boundaries. Hmm. Um, I can't even think of the name of the author. Is um, that bad? No,
0: no, not at all. <laughs> I'll put the link on the website and you're actually the second person to recommend that book, which is cool.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a great book because I think a lot of times, uh, especially being a business owner or person, there's just a lot of boundaries that we don't know how to stay within. And, and it sounds bad. Like when you hear boundaries, you're like, what? But you you just realize there's a lot of, There's a lot of things that you either say yes to or say no to, or you just don't know how to, um, have boundaries and work relationships. I mean, one thing I would say is being a business owner, sometimes it's hard to know when to stop. You know, you don't have a regular nine to five, you know, you as a business owner, you're kind of like never off work and, um, but you need to be. And that's something that I'm learning more and more now, and I think that's, something that will be addressed in the book boundaries just helping you realize like there needs to be boundaries with clients also like you can't be available 24/7 and um that book is really helpful and in, in helping you with that and then also just personal relationships um another book that I recently read which some people would say is sad but I found it to be fascinating and interesting. And it's a true story. It's called The Color of Water. It's a very interesting book. Um, It's a book by a biracial guy. His mother was Jewish. His father was African-American and they grew up in a time um, and lived in Harlem. And he basically talks about his life with a biracial family in a time that it wasn't common yeah um and with his mother being Jewish she was actually disowned by her family oh. and so the book kind of talks about her story and his story and it's just it's interesting it, it deals with a lot of adversity and like how to rise above that and um some people would say it's a sad book not everyone liked it but I actually really enjoyed reading it. Nice. And um, the third book that I would recommend um, is, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality.
0: Um, Actually, I think our church is just going through that book back in uh, California.
1: That book will will rock your world. Um, It just, it's, as a Christian, I I think that a lot of times um, there's just a lot of, things that we endure and we go through in life. And that book just really helps get to the, the root of a lot of things that we do and like why being emotionally healthy is important yeah. and spiritually healthy. But I think a lot of times, especially as a believer, we focus so much on like being spiritually healthy that we don't tackle the other areas of like emotionally and, and that sort of thing. And that book is amazing. Very it, nice. I think after chapter one he'll be different. So. Yeah, you know, actually <laughs> I,
0: I started reading that book once our pastor mentioned it. Um I need to to get back into it on your recommendation for sure.
1: Really good.
0: What do you do for fun, Chef Kendra? <laughs>
1: um, I'm really into art and poetry. Um I love I'm a writer myself. I a lot of people don't know this about me because i don't like to share it um but i love writing it's it's an escape for me but it's also just a way to just the lord like puts a lot of things out through me through my writing i've written several songs several poems and no one i think some people have heard one of my songs but um it's what I do for fun. I'm, I'm actually about to start taking guitar lessons because I love to sing. Nice. Um, and I want to learn how to play the guitar so that I can, you know, be a, a, a small version of Lauren Hill. <laughs> not, not for the fade, but just, you know, that vibe. I know? hear you. I,
0: I want to be able to write.
1: Yeah, I, I really love that. Um, I love playing volleyball that's actually something that maybe a lot of people wouldn't know about me but yeah any any, those kinds of things anything artsy look going to museums um i just i love all of that stuff that has to do with creativity
0: i actually just pulled out my guitar after a while my brother got me one a number of years back and i had learned to play a couple of songs and then set it aside and uh, I just pulled it back out know. a couple of days ago. So I was practicing this. Uh,
1: nice. Now that
0: I'm in Texas, I'm going to go back to my country roots. So I've been listening to a lot of country music. I'm <laughs> learning to play a few country <laughs> songs.
1: I would love to see that.
0: Yeah, you're going you gonna to see it on YouTube one of these days, maybe a couple of years from now, <laughs> once I get my skills up. Where can people find you online, Chef Kendra?
1: On Instagram, um, my handle is Chef Kendra, and it's with a Y, so C-H-E-F-K-Y-N-D-R-A. Um, Facebook, we have Oolala La Catering, um, and those are the main places. I'm not on Snapchat or Twitter or any of that, just pretty much Instagram is where I live as far as social media. And
0: what about your website? Our,
1: my website is... Um, Ooh dash, Lala Catering dot com. It's O O H hyphen L A L A Catering dot com.
0: And the pictures of the food are making my mouth water. It's very good. It reminds me that I remember there was a private dinner you can do for my wife and I that I never cashed in on. So I'm going to have to fly you out to Texas to come make a private meal with us. Then you can eat with us. That's true i forgot about that yeah i, I set had, it up i, hey, had I would too. love to come there yeah please do we got a spare room we want you to come out and do that okay well my guest today has been chef kendra kendra thanks for being on the break in the glass show
1: thank you so much for having me this was really
0: fun if you enjoyed this episode please take a moment to leave a rating and review on itunes or google play